Well, Matthew chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. If you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible with you, uh, you can download an app real quick called the Bible app. Um, or there are some Bibles uh, in the chairs spaced out throughout the room. Matthew chapter 2. The guy who wrote this, his name is Matthew. So it's a clever title for this book of the Bible. And Matthew was a tax collector. That means that he was wealthy and he got his wealth from cheating out his family, from cheating out his Jewish nation. So he'd grown up as a Jew and he turned his back on his family heritage, on his religion, on everything that his family stood for, and he worked for the Romans. And so because of that, he received lots of wealth, lots of power, but he was hated by his countrymen, by his family. And Matthew, one day, while he was at his office, Jesus comes up to him and says, hey, follow me. And that was very surprising to everyone because people hated Matthew because he was so corrupt and he was just such a, you know, notorious sinner. They were shocked that Jesus would ask him to do that, and yet Jesus wanted Matthew to follow And then what's maybe even more surprising is not just the fact that Jesus asked Matthew, but that Matthew said yes to following Jesus. And the reason that's surprising is because Matthew and Jesus had basically nothing in common. Matthew was very wealthy. Jesus was poor. Matthew was, you know, had lots of influence in the Roman world. Jesus had none. Matthew had turned his back on the Jewish faith. Jesus was like a rabbi. I mean, they have nothing in common. And yet Matthew said yes to following Jesus. And here's why I think that is, because people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. People who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. And so Matthew leaves his office and he starts to follow Jesus and he starts to learn about this this way of Jesus. And he sees Jesus do some incredible things. He sees him heal people, he sees him walk on the water, He's in the boat one time when he calms a storm. I mean, he's just, he's, he's all over the place. He sees all these amazing things, and then he sees Jesus go to the cross. He sees Jesus who claims to be the Son of God, who claims to be the King of the Jews and the King of the world. He sees him go and be executed. And then he sees him be raised from the dead. And after he witnesses all of that stuff, Matthew gives his life to helping more and more people come to believe and follow Jesus. And so one of the ways that Matthew chose to do that is to write down an account of Jesus' life. And he couldn't include everything that Jesus did. He had to be selective. And it's interesting the things that Matthew chooses to include that other gospel writers leave out. One of those things is this genealogy that we looked at two weeks ago. And the point of that was that Jesus comes from sinners and Jesus came for sinners. Jesus came from sinners and he came for sinners. The reason that was important to Matthew is because he was such a terrible sinner. He wanted to make, pe- make sure people knew that. And now in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew's going to include this story that is not in the other gospel accounts. And the reason I think is because of who Matthew is. Matthew is going to tell this story, and basically this story is about two two people, two groups of people, who have something in common. 
The first person is named Herod. Herod was a wealthy king. We'll talk about him in a second. The second group of people we call the wise men. And the wise men were also wealthy, influential, powerful people from the east. And these two sets of people who have wealth and who have power respond to Jesus differently. And so this morning, what I want to talk about is this simple question. If you want to have glory in your life, if you want to have glory, then how do you need to respond to Jesus? Now, in our culture, we don't typically walk around and wonder, like, I wonder how I could get glory. Like, we don't think in that term. Like, what does that even mean, to have glory? To have glory means for people to look up to you and think, you're respectable, you're significant. It means for you to have honor. It means for for people to look at you and think, wow, she's beautiful or he's beautiful or he has a beautiful life or a beautiful family or a beautiful home. It means for people to think that you're successful. It means for people to, to aspire to be like you. It means for you to have fame and notoriety and to be looked up to by others. That's what it means to have glory. And all of us kind of want that. Like you don't set out like when you buy your house to think, how could I get the worst house possible so that everyone would think less of me, right? You've never had that moment. You don't like go shopping at the store and you're like, what clothes could I get that would make people think less of me? How could I look worse, right? You, you don't do that. And the reason is because it's in us to want glory. So the question is, if you want glory, then how do you need to respond to Jesus? And that's what we're going to find out today in Matthew chapter 2. So Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. So these first two verses give us the setting for this story. The setting is it was in the days of King Herod. And King Herod uh, historically is known as Herod the Great. And if you go to Israel today, um, and lots of Christians love to do that, and it's like a spiritual experience. Um, if you go to Israel today, almost everything cool that you see was built by Herod the Great. If it wasn't for Herod the Great, the trip to Israel would be super boring, okay? And so Herod the Great built most of the stuff. And the Romans loved him for that. He was a great leader um, in the sense that he was good at administrating stuff. He was good at getting stuff done. He built all kinds of wonderful things. He helped the economy grow. I mean, he was just a good leader in that sense. Um, and so Herod was the man in this region. But he also had uh, a paranoia, <laughs> okay? He had a paranoia that um, people were trying to steal his power and his glory and his throne. And so he famously killed off like almost everybody in his family, killed off m- many sons, wives, cousins, nephews. I mean, like just killed him. And he was ruthless in that way. And so Caesar Augustus famously said of Herod, I would rather be his pig than his son. (laughs) I would rather be his pig than his son. In other words, it would be safer 
for you to maybe get slaughtered as his pig and, you know, for a meal than to be his son because you're for sure going to die if you're his son. That's who Herod was. He's paranoid about losing power. But here he is in power and he calls himself the king of the Jews. Now, what's ironic about that is he's not Jewish. He's an Edomite. And so he's not Jewish, but he has leveraged all of his influence to gain the authority of Palestine. And so he calls himself the king of the Jews because he rules over the Jews. And now these wise men from the east arrive in Jerusalem, which is Herod's capital city. And they're asking this question, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? Now, do you see why a question like that would be threatening to someone like Herod? What do you mean, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? I'm the king of the Jews. The question implies that there's a birth that makes my reign and my rule illegitimate. And so he's threatened by this question. And he's threatened by these people who are asking the question. It says that they're wise men from the east. Wise men from the east. Now, the word wise men here is literally the word magi. Magi. Magi just refers to a magician, a sorcerer, a dream interpreter, an astrologer. It's people who use zodiac signs and they look at the stars and they study them and then they use those, the information that they gather to predict events. And so in the ancient world, it was very common for kings and those in authority to have these magi, these wise men, these people who could study things and were very superstitious and would make decisions based on those things. It was very normal for kings to have them around because they could help make wise decisions. Like, should we invade these people over here? Or should we uh, be worried about this treaty or this peace you know, um, offering from this other nation? Um, and so they would keep these people on their side to help them make good decisions. And this isn't actually that weird today. Now it's weird, like we would be like, oh, I don't know if that's sign, I don't know how true that we should, how much stock we should put in that stuff. But this still happens today. In fact, um, there's lots of rumors about Nancy Reagan while she was in the White House being very into astrology. Before President Reagan would make a major decision, Nancy Reagan would call some of her astrologist uh, experts and just run it by them. Okay? So this is still a normal thing in today's world. And so that's who these wise men were. And it says that they're from the east. And the east probably refers to Persia or Babylon. It would be modern-day Iraq or Iran. And so they are these eastern magicians who have power in the east. And they show up, and Herod is threatened. Look how Herod responds. He says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, why do you think all Jerusalem is troubled? Because Herod's a madman, right? And if Herod's troubled, everybody's troubled because you never know what the guy's going to do. He's going to fly off the rails at any moment. And so they are troubled. And notice this, verse 4, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, 
he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So Herod, as a ruler of these Jewish people, knew that the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, talked about a Christ, a king, a Messiah, who would be born. And now he, he assembles all of these experts of the Hebrew Bible. And he says, where is that king supposed to be born? So these people showed up. They want to know where the king is. And where are they supposed to go? Now, here's what's fascinating to me about this. The reason that the Magi, the wise men, end up in Jerusalem is because they say that a star has appeared to them. So they follow the star to Jerusalem, okay? But now the star has gone dark. Isn't that interesting? Why doesn't the star just lead them straight to Bethlehem? Instead, the star leads them to Jerusalem and then they can't find it anymore and they need to ask for directions. Isn't that interesting? It's almost as if God is foreshadowing what kind of kingdom this new king will bring. It's not just a kingdom for those in Jerusalem. It's not just a kingdom for those in Israel. It's a kingdom for people from everywhere, from the east and the west. And in fact, if you want to hold on to the way things were in Jerusalem, he'll go dark to you. Isn't that interesting? And so where do they need to go to search for the answers to find this king? The scriptures. The scriptures are what attest to Jesus the king. The scriptures are what speak to his power and his authority. And so they start to study the scriptures. Verse 5. So these experts say they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For you will, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So he quotes from the Old Testament here, the book of Micah, and he says, this is where the Christ is to be born, Bethlehem. And he makes a little insertion here. Uh, he says in verse 6, Bethlehem is by no means least. But Matthew adds that to make his point that this place that's humble is about to be exalted. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them, what a great word, ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So he wants to know, okay, tell me more about this whole thing and help me figure out where to... Uh, where this kid is. And he sent them, verse 8, he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And of course, that's not his intention. Herod bows to no one. But he's got these little guys who can work for him now. And he's good at making people work for him. So, hey, you guys go find him to save me the trouble and then just come back and let me know where he is so that I can worship him too, right? Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they, that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now the star is working again. 
That's odd. Now, there's a lot of, um, you can Google this stuff, but there's a lot of speculation about what star this might be. Like, um, there were certain uh, eclipses and certain, um, you know, comets and things that were, that happened around this time that scholars maybe think that this star might have been. Uh, I tend to think this is a supernatural thing because typical stars don't guide you to where you're going, right? They're fixed, and you move, and they don't. So I'm tended, I tend to think that this is supernatural. There was speculation in the ancient world that there would be this king who would come and that a star would come with his birth. Um, part of that was because uh, Caesar, uh, Julius Caesar, whenever they were having his funeral, this star went into the sky at the same time as his death, or at the same time as the funeral. And so it was believed that that was like Julius Caesar taking his seat amongst the gods. And so there was this rumor and speculation that a, a, a wonderful, beautiful figure would be born and that his birth would be accompanied by a star. Um, and so I think there's reason that the Magi would have been interested in the star, but I think the star is supernatural. And if that's hard to believe, <laughs> Matthew would say, keep reading. Because at the very beginning of the story, he wants you to know, listen, what follows is not normal. What follows is not normal. This King Jesus that's been born will defy your rational mind. That doesn't mean that you should just believe in him without considering some things rationally. That's not at all what it means. But it means that he will be greater than your finite mind can comprehend. And so they went on their way. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Now think about this sight for a minute. These wealthy foreigners, okay, show up at this podunk town. Be like Jefferson County, right? And they're heading out there and they're like, you know, making their way through and then they get into this little house and they start worshiping this baby. What does it mean to worship here? It means to adore. It means to dote on. It means to give glory to. It means to treat someone or something like it's worth a lot more than me. And that's what they start to do to this baby. Now, think about how just mind-blowing that would be to mom and dad and to the people around. It is a weird sight. But that's what they do. And going, uh, where did I leave off? Oh yeah, verse uh, 11. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So they start to give him all of this expensive stuff and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So they just come, they go in there, 
They worship this little kid. They give these super expensive gifts. Gold, okay? Think about that. That would still be expensive today. Think about that then. They just prance in with the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh. And then they're on their way again. These wealthy people respond to Jesus by coming and giving him glory. By using their wealth on him. And then being warned about this other wealthy man who does not intend to respond the same way. They go a different route back to the east. Verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So God's one step ahead, as always. And Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, Matthew is going to develop this theme. We don't have time to talk about it this morning, but Matthew's going to develop this theme that Jesus is the greater Moses. He's the greater Moses. In the same way that Moses was this wonderful prophet who led his people out of slavery in Egypt and brought them to the promised land, so Jesus is the greater Moses who goes to Egypt and then returns to the land to bring his people to life. We don't have time to talk about that this morning. Verse 16, after they've fled to Egypt, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, which you should have seen it coming, right? They're called wise men. Um, When he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region, who were two years old or under, according to the time that he ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Again, connecting Jesus to Moses. Do you remember in the Exodus story? The reason that Moses ends up in Pharaoh's household is because Pharaoh is going to kill all of the boys who are two years old and younger. And Moses is spared. He escapes. Jesus also escapes. Now, this is a horrible, horrible event that Herod executes here. Um, In a town like Bethlehem, there probably would have been just a handful of boys two years old and younger. So it's, it's not the massacre that sometimes it's portrayed as where it's like millions. It's probably just a few, but it is still horrific. And at the heart of it is a man who wants to hold on to his glory and his power. 
But you know what happens to Herod? Verse 19. But when Herod died, but when Herod died, do you know why that's so significant? Because he built all of this great stuff. He accumulated all of this great wealth. He had all of this power in his little section of the world. And his fate was the same as everyone. Do you know what happens to his glory? It's all lost. And meanwhile, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he might be called, that he would be called a Nazarene. So Jesus is spared from Egypt. He comes back to the land. They settle in a city called Nazareth, where Jesus is going to grow up, learn how to work with his hands and be a construction worker, and then eventually take up his ministry. But this morning, we're not talking about that story. This morning, we're just talking about what to do with Jesus if you want glory. In this story, we're presented with two groups who already have glory and how they respond to Jesus. The first group, the wise men, they use their glory and they lay it at the feet of Jesus, even as a child, and they worship him. And this morning, we're still speaking highly of them. Herod is threatened by this this kid who's been born king of the Jews. He tries to kill him. He does not go and worship him. Instead, he tries to kill him, and Herod dies. How are you going to respond? How are you going to respond to Jesus? If you want to receive glory, then what do you need to do with Jesus? See, here's what's challenging about Jesus for us. In some sense, in some way, all of us have a little bit of Herod in us. Now, thankfully, we're not a lot like Herod, okay? Uh, thankfully, we're not all like exactly like Herod. But there is a little bit of Herod in all of us. There is a little bit of this desire to hold on to what's mine, to seek my gain at the expense of others, to, to want to exalt myself, to want to receive power and, and, and honor and beauty and wealth and privilege and prestige for myself. There's a little bit of that in all of us. Yesterday, Courtney and I did like all of our Christmas shopping for the year. Actually, that's not true. We have a couple of things left to do. And I could feel myself like when I'm walking into a store at the same time as somebody wanting to walk faster. I could feel myself wanting to, to cut people, to get to the line faster. What is that? 
That's Herod. There's a little bit of that in all of us. If you've ever been around kids and they start comparing who's taller than the other. Anytime a, a teenage girl yells at her mom because of a disagreement, that's a little bit of Herod in us. When a boy makes fun of somebody around the girl that he likes so that he feels exalted, that's the Herod in us. When a student cheats to make an A, that's the little bit of Herod in us. When a husband talks down to his wife, that's the Herod in us. There's a little bit of that in all of us. Like Coldplay says, we've all got poison in our blood. And that Herod thing in all of us, that Herod-esque quality, causes Jesus to be threatening to us. Because Jesus comes to the earth as king. That means that all honor, all glory is his. He is to be respected. He is to be honored in the way that we make decisions. He is to be honored in the way that we treat people. He is to be honored in the way that I use my sexuality. He's to be honored in the way I use my money. He's to be honored in all things by all people. And he doesn't budge on that. He's king. That's threatening. But the only way to get Jesus in your life is to let him be king. The only way to, let Jesus, to get Jesus in your life is to let him be king. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his, uh, he has uh, this book with some reflections about Christmas, and it's just a beautiful book. But <clears throat> listen to this from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Who among us will celebrate Christmas correctly? Whoever finally lays down all power, all honor, all reputation, all vanity, all arrogance, all individualism beside the manger. Whoever remains lowly and lets God alone be high, whoever looks at the child in the manger and sees the glory of God precisely in his lowliness. That's who will celebrate Christmas correctly. Do you see what Jesus is demonstrating here? Jesus is the one who's been born king of the Jews. And what does he do to be born? In order for Jesus to be born, he gives up the wealth, the power, the privilege, the fame, the honor of heaven, and he comes to earth. And he's not coming to Jerusalem. He's not coming to New York City or Beijing. He comes to the middle of nowhere, Bethlehem. And he grows up in the middle of nowhere, Nazareth. Jesus is the king who gives up his glory. His glory, his glory is precisely in his lowliness. The only line that Jesus races to be at the front of is the line to the cross. The ultimate place of shame and humiliation where Jesus gives up his glory. That's the only line he races to be at the front of. 
That's the kind of king that Jesus is. And that means that if you're going to get Jesus into your life, that you have to let him be king. You have to see the glory in the lowliness. You have to see the glory in giving up glory. So two questions I want to ask you real quick as we wrap this up. First, why should you want Jesus in your life? Why should you want Jesus in your life? If getting Jesus in your life requires embracing this path of giving up glory to somehow get glory, if that's what following Jesus means, then why should you do that? Because that is not what the world says to do. So why should you do that? Why should you want Jesus in your life? Here's why. Because he's the king who uses his power and his wealth, who gives it up so that you can be saved from your sins. 2 Corinthians 2, 8 and 9 says that God, who is rich, for your sake became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. Do you get, did you hear that? You go read it yourself. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. God, who is rich, for your sake became poor so that through his poverty you might become rich. That's the kind of king that Jesus is. Why do you need Jesus in your life? Because without him, you are poor in glory. Now, you might be like Herod and think, no, I've actually got a lot. We just got a new car, got a cool house. My kids make pretty good grades. I am attractive. I've got good, you know, nice clothes. I've got, you know, a lot of stuff going for me. I've got a good job, respectable. I go into places, people know me. <laughs> And that's all great. But you have no glory. You are completely impoverished when it comes to the glory you need for eternity. And that's why Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not, they don't fall short of God's morality. They do fall short of God's morality, but it's not just his morality that's at stake. It's his glory. It's how great he is. It's how good he is. It's how, how valuable he is, how worthy he is. And we all fall short of that because of our sin. And Jesus has come to earth to make us rich. What does that mean? Not that you'll get to live in a cool house because you belong to Jesus. He didn't come to give you a great house in a great neighborhood, in a great school district. That's not why he came to earth. He came to earth to make you rich towards God. And do you know how he does that? He who made the world gives up the glory that's his. He empties himself by becoming the form of a servant. And then he gives and gives and gives until he gives his life by going to the cross to die in your place and mine. He suffers once for all time, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Our bank account was empty before God and Jesus loads it up. That's what Jesus has come to do and that's why you need Jesus in your life because without him, you have no glory that will last. Just like Herod, you might build some cool stuff, you might have some respect on the earth, but someday you will die and that will be the end of you. 
But with Jesus, there's glory that lasts. There's glory that endures. So why do you need Jesus in your life? Because he's the only one who can make you rich towards God. And this is good news for wealthy people and poor people, for wise and foolish people, for powerful and weak people, because at the cross, we're all the same. We all need his glory. So that's why you should want Jesus in your life, because he is the only one who can make you rich towards God. The other reason is that his kingdom is what you were made for. His kingdom is what you were made for. The thing, the reason that you chase all of these other things is because you want joy. You want something to be excited about. You want something to be happy about. And Jesus is the king who will one day establish a kingdom on the earth of joy where people are excited to be there. Jesus is the king who builds a kingdom of friendship. A, a kingdom where people all get along, where they're best friends, where they are known and loved, where even the worst parts of me can be exposed and I can still be accepted. That's the kind of kingdom that Jesus brings. There's no insecurities and no secrets in that kingdom. Jesus comes to bring a kingdom where there's peace. That means there's no wars and there's no worries. There's no stress and anxiety. He's the king of peace. Jesus comes to bring a kingdom of justice. That means people always do the right thing and there are no people who are oppressed and marginalized. That's the kind of kingdom that Jesus comes to bring. The kind of kingdom where you can leave your doors unlocked at night. The kind of kingdom where you can leave your packages out on your front step and they won't get stolen. We live in a neighborhood where that's not true today, but the kingdom is coming someday where that will be true. This kingdom that Jesus is bringing is a kingdom of prosperity. Prosperity. It's not like, ah, we got to get down to the mess hall so we can get our rations for the day. It's not like a big line where it's like, hey, we got pizza tonight and you can only have two pieces, make sure everybody gets some. It's not that kind of kingdom. The kind of kingdom that Jesus brings is a kingdom of prosperity where there's always leftovers and you never have to eat them the next day. That's the kind of kingdom that Jesus brings. Jesus brings a kingdom of work. Work. It's not like we're all just kicking our feet up. It's a kingdom where you get to, to work on stuff and do stuff that you're good at and it's always fruitful. The reason that work is hard today is because you do stuff and then there's all kinds of obstacles. You got people that are in your way of making progress. You got processes and systems that are broken down and they just drive you crazy and it's all frustrating. But the kingdom is coming where you'll be able to work and you'll see results instantly because there will be no more curse. The curse will be removed. And so work will be fruitful again. And then there's also a kingdom that's coming that is a kingdom of health. Health. Now, we have a king who comes to earth, becomes an embryo. Okay, think about that. Is born, grows up, dies, and then is raised from the dead physically. Jesus is not this king of the spiritual world where we can all float around ethereally and share because stuff doesn't really matter anyway. And that's not the kind of king that Jesus is. Instead, Jesus is a king who was crucified and has been raised from the dead in a glorious body. And that's your future too if you belong to Jesus. This kingdom that Jesus is bringing is a kingdom of health. And that means that loved ones that you've lost will be raised. This means that your back 
won't hurt anymore. It means that your memory will work again. It means that you'll be able to run again and cook again and dance again. It means that you'll be able to sing again. And that is the kind of king that Jesus is. The kind of king who dances and cooks and sings and has people over and is pumped to be there. And the kingdom that is coming is a kingdom of health. That's the kind of kingdom that Jesus is bringing and that's what we were made for and that's what we long for and you only get that kingdom if Jesus is the king. So, what does it mean for you to surrender and let Jesus be king? That's the second question. How do you let Jesus be king? First, you trust him. You trust him. Proverbs 3 says, in all your ways, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Are you trusting Jesus in all your ways? Your relationship ways, your dating ways, your parenting ways, your marriage ways, your financial ways, your, your hanging out with yourself in the car ways, your sexual ways. Are you acknowledging Jesus in all your ways? That's what it means to trust him. It means, Jesus, what you say is good and what you have is better, so I'm going to go with you. What you say is good, what you have is better, so I'm going to go with you. That's what it means to trust him, to acknowledge him in all your ways. How would your life look differently if you believed that Jesus was a king who was going to lead you to life? If he wasn't a tyrant who was just trying to make you obey so that you would, you know, so he could get what he wants. But how would your life look differently if you believed that Jesus was a king who wanted to give you life? How do you let Jesus be king? You trust him and you honor him. If your life was a kingdom, What kind of kingdom are you building? If your life was a kingdom, what kind of kingdom are you building? Where are you spending your money? How are you using your time? How are you relating to people? How are you preparing for the future? What kind of kingdom are you building? If you want your life to have glory, then how are you going to respond to Jesus? Are you going to respond like Herod? Where you're threatened? Where you think that the way that you'll get the most glory is to hold on to your glory? Or will you respond like the wise men? Who recognize the glory of Jesus even in his lowliness. And they honor him. Let's pray. Father, thank you, first of all, for being a king that we can trust. God, would you give us wisdom to know what to do with what we've just heard? And would you give us the courage to do it? If there are those in the room who are struggling to trust you, would you give us faith? If there are those in the room who don't know you, 
would you introduce yourself now? Be honored in the way that we respond to your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. <laughs>